We're in John chapter 15 this morning. And this is the second part of Jesus' farewell address to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And this actually began in the 13th chapter when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, the beginning of the, the uh, 13th chapter. And then uh, in uh, chapter 13, there it says that in verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately, that is Judas Iscariot, the traitor, went out and it was night. I, I think it's an interesting term. It was night. The darkness of sin is falling now around Jesus. And he's going to have to suffer for the sins of his people. But uh, when he had gone out, verse 31 says, when he had gone out, it's interesting, he's out of this. This message is not for those who are unbelievers. This message is for those who are saved disciples of Jesus. Judas, you're not included. Out into the night. And so when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is is the Son of Man glorified and the Father is glorified in Him. Wow. And from this, He begins this uh, address. This final address. The first part of that final address goes through chapter 14, as we have uh, pointed out, because that uh, chapter 14 closes with verse 31. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that... The world may know that I love the Father. And then he said, Arise, let us go from here. So they left the upper room. So chapter, the end of chapter 13, chapter 14, technically is the upper room discourse. Then we come into the 15th chapter, and I believe the 15th and the 16th chapters were given by Jesus as the disciples walked from uh, the upper room through the streets of Jerusalem to cross over the Kidron and enter into the Garden of Gethsemane there on the other side. But I believe these two were, were spoken in the city of Jerusalem, including the 17th chapter, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. I do not know where he prayed it. Maybe perhaps at the, there right at the Kidron. I don't know. Uh, where, but uh, the 18th chapter, and I want you to notice this, begins with these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he had, which he and his disciples entered. So the high priestly prayer was prayed still in Jerusalem. And, of course, one of the reasons why I know that is because John records it here very accurately. And we know that when he went into, when they went into the Garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus prayed, they were sleeping. <laughs> we know that from, from uh, other texts. So let's get into the 15th chapter. The 15th chapter begins with this statement, I am the true vine. That this is the last... This is the last of Jesus' uh, I am statements, which he gives there in the, in the Gospel of John. 
I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Uh, all seven I am declarations are metaphors. What is a metaphor? A metaphor is a figure of speech to represent something else. It's a way of expressing ourselves in a figure of speech. We use figures of speech all the time. We don't think about them, but they're metaphors. What's a metaphor? I don't know what a metaphor is for. <laughs> so, uh, a metaphor. We use them constantly. For example, Joe is a night owl. Uh, no, Joe is not a bird. <laughs> and he doesn't fly around at night. It just means he likes the night hours to do things. Or we might say Sarah has her head in the clouds. Oh, we don't mean that uh, that she's that tall or that she floats around in the clouds. We mean that uh, she's one of these persons that's always out in outer space somewhere, you know, think in her think. That's a better word, too. <laughs> or we could say uh, Tom is a couch potato, uh, <laughs> which means he's, uh, uh, her head in the clouds means she's not very practical, but... Tom is a couch potato, which means he's lazy. <laughs> and it's not this Tom. <laughs> this Tom is anything but lazy. And uh, Or Virginia has a heart of gold, which means she's generously looking out for others. So these are metaphors. But each of these I am statements of Jesus uh, were used by John to describe a characteristic of the person of Christ. He gives them He's, he, he makes the statement, and they describe some pers some aspect of his person, which is very valuable to us. For, so the others, for example, back in chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Uh, Jesus is not literal bread. He had just fed 5,000 with uh, five loaves and two small fishes. By the way, I heard an explanation of that. Uh, it really doesn't mean that Jesus performed any miracle, but that everybody brought their lunch and they shared with one another. I tell you what. Uh, <laughs> no, Jesus showed that he is the great provider. And he can provide for the needs of everyone. And he sustains life because he is the life giver and he sustains that life because as bread, physical bread, sustains our physical life. So Jesus is our spiritual food to sustain our spiritual life, which we just acknowledged here at the table. The second, in the second one, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Uh, we live in darkness Sin has produced darkness. But Jesus is the light that shines the truth out of that darkness into our minds and our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then he said in, the th in the chapter 10, verses 7 and 9, I am the door of the sheep. Now, Jesus is not a literal door either. But he's the way of the sheep. He is the one who provides access into the glorious truths of the spiritual life. And then in the same chapter, in 
verses 11 and 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's the one who leads the sheep. He's the door. He's the way into the sheepfold and the way out of the sheepfold. Uh, but he's also the shepherd who leads the sheep in and out. And then the fifth, in the fifth I am is chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I, we're, we're waiting for a resurrection of our physical life. And, you know, we, we, uh, we look for, forward to that day. But Jesus says, no, no, don't look for a day. Look to me. I'm the one who is going to raise you from the dead. And I'm here and I'm with you now and I'm giving you life even now. Resurrection life. I live by resurrection life. The life that he shares with me because of his resurrection. And then in the 14th chapter, verse 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in a sense, kind of reiterating what he has previously stated, but here again, I'm the way to God, I'm the truth of God, I am the life of God. I am these things. And so now here, the seventh one in, in the 15th chapter, in verse 1, I am the true vine. All of these I am statements relate to the divine name that was revealed to Moses. When they're at the burning bush, when God called Moses to go back to Egypt to lead his people out of Egypt and out of their slavery, Moses asked, who will I say sent me? What is your name? They're going to ask me, who sent you? What is your name? And his response was, I am that I am. In a sense, it's not a name. It's a descriptive of his, of his person, his being. It, it's a verb, the verb to be. God never was or will be. He is, period. I am. I am that I am. So we read there in, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. In verse 15, God said, also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh. Yahweh. I am. That I am. The God of your fathers. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. It's a covenant name. Yahweh doesn't belong to everybody. It belongs to those only to whom he... In with whom he enters covenant. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. Yahweh. We use uh, the anglicized form of that. Jehovah. Jehovah. Some Bible translations. American Standard Version for example. Uses Jehovah. But the Hebrew is the tetragrammaton. Yahweh. Four letters of the Hebrew language there this is my name he says and this is my the, the name by which he entered covenant with israel so we read there in exodus 6 verses 4 and 5 i was i i also established my covenant with them to give them the land of canaan 
the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Now that covenant he made with Abraham. But now he makes a new covenant, really another covenant. It's not a new, but it's another covenant based on the covenant of Abraham uh, with the children of Israel who are in Egypt through Moses. And this covenant has three aspects. One, he says he would redeem Israel. That is, he would buy them off the slave market of sin for himself. Now that's interesting. Redeem. That word, we use the word redeem. You know what redeem means? It means to buy back. Something that originally belonged to you was taken from you and now you go and redeem it. You go and buy it back. The children of Israel were sold into the slavery of Egypt because of their sinfulness. God said, I'm going to buy them back. And then I'm taking them out of Egypt and I'm going to put them in a, a new kingdom. A new kingdom. From one of the old kingdom into a new kingdom. And secondly, he would identify them as his people. And this is the power, uh, really, of this thing. They are my people and I am their God. He would be their God. And then thirdly, he would bring them into then his new earthly kingdom, which was in Canaan. A land, the people that he promised to Abraham. Way back there, a kingdom to bring him glory in the midst of a pagan world. In the 32nd chapter of of. Uh, Deuteronomy, this is very clear, he turned the nations over to the gods of this world, to the sons of God, to the gods of this world. But he said, one I'm keeping for myself, and that's Jacob. So then, we have now Jesus taking this eternal name, Yahweh, I am that I am. And he takes it for himself, and thus identifies as the God of Israel. This is one of those interesting mysteries. How can Jesus be? He's not the Father, but he is one with the Father. Is he the Jehovah of the Old Covenant? Well then, how then is Jehovah of the Old Covenant speak of his Son? So these are some of the kind of some of the mystery that we don't understand. You know that I don't think we'll fully understand till we get and stand before God in glory. But Jesus is now taking this name for Himself, Yahweh, the eternal name, and under this name. And here's I think the important truth here: under this name, He established a new covenant, just like Yahweh with Moses established a covenant with Israel, Jesus is establishing a covenant with his people. The new covenant with the people of God. And he does the same, and he offers the same three things. He promises the same three things. He's going to redeem them. 
He's promising to redeem them and make them his own. I'm going to be their God. They are going to be my people. And then he's going to establish his kingdom with him, with them. And, he, and it's interesting how Jesus begins his earthly ministry. We don't, you know, we need to understand how these things work together. But when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he was, he entered into Judah to speak to the people of Israel. And he makes it very clear you know, with with uh, particularly with the uh, woman uh, there, the Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus to heal her demon possessed daughter, and Jesus said, "I am sent. I'm not sent, but to the lost tribes of the house of Israel." And so now, when he comes into Judah and begins his ministry, what is his message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls this rebellious people to repent of their wicked ways and follow Yahweh, their God. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, Matthew is the only gospel writer that uses the term kingdom of heaven. Some have tried to make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and you can't do that, obviously, because for one reason, the the same we have three gospel writers that use the same words to describe the kingdom of heaven as the, repent for the kingdom of God. In fact, notice in Mark chapter one verse fifteen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Or Luke's gospel. And uh, Luke uh, chapter 4 verse 43. He says, I must preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus took on the rebellious nation, calling them to repentance and warning them that unless they receive him, they would remain in a rejected status, which is what they were, according to the book of Malachi. Romans 11 there, Paul begins Romans 11 by asking the question, has God rejected his people? And here Paul is very clearly setting forth this distinction that we need to understand even in our day. And a lot of people miss this. He starts out by asking, has God rejected his people? And he immediately responds by saying, no, by no means. And then showing that he himself was an Israelite. Part of that remnant chosen by grace, according to verse number 5. He goes on to give an illustration there of Elijah who thought he was the only one and God said no I have 5,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal I've kept for myself 5,000 who have not and so then Paul explains what they are these are the remnant chosen by grace verse number 15 uh, verse number 5 but Israel as a whole according to Paul here failed to obtain what it was seeking 
in unbelief. But, he says, the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, that, thro that, that throws a lot of people into a panic. What do you mean, he, God hardened them? You know how God hardens? He tells you the truth, but He does not give you the grace to receive the truth, and your own sinful heart hardens itself. Because you're the rebel. If God does not give you the grace to change, then you're going to continue to harden your heart. So it says, there, and the rest were hardened. So then Paul asks, did they stumble in order that they might fall totally, finally, and completely? See, that's the idea. That's verse 11. Again, he answers, no. And the reason he gives for their stumbling was in order that God would then grant equal status to uh, the elect Gentiles. That the Gent elect Gentiles could be incorporated into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And they would share equal status with the elect Israelites. And this is according to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. We're fellow heirs. Fellow heirs of the kingdom. So then he concludes there in verses 8 and uh, uh, in, uh, nine, uh, verse number 9 of Ephesians 3. The plan was a mystery hidden for ages in God. So this manifold wisdom of God was the means of revealing the unsearchable riches of Christ, according to verses number 8 and 10. Indeed, Jesus fulfills Israel's purpose by becoming the true Israel. He becomes the true Israel. Now, I'm laying that out because this is important to the 15th chapter. The second part of Jesus' farewell address, and that's chapter 15, and uh, what we're in here, our, our concern here is the, the first 16 verses. We're only going to deal with the first eight. And I'll deal with the second eight. But verse chapter 15 verses 1 through 16. But the whole uh, 15th chapter was probably given to the disciples as they left the upper room and walked through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. This part of the discussion has two parts. The first part is the first eight verses which sets forth the metaphor of the vine. And the second eight verses then explain the metaphor. We'll, we're saving that for next week. Now here's the issue though. The sovereignty of God is the foundation of the establishment or the reestablishment of the eternal kingdom. Replacing the rotten fruit of Adam's disobedience which resulted in the worldly kingdom usurped by the God of this world. The farewell discourse, chapters which is chapters 14 through 16, explains God's purpose to restore His kingdom through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that which the first Adam lost. The second section of the discourse closes with a powerful declaration, and I, and I want you to see this, of Christ's sovereignty. 
Jesus, knowing the confusion, the uncertainty, the fear, the doubt that was in the minds of his disciples, reminded them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. ESV says abide, but that's the word remain. I'm remaining. Remain or continue. Verse 16. Think about that. And we need to take that declaration of purpose to heart. Jesus chose us and assigned us the same duty. We are to go and bear fruit. Jesus promises that our fruit will remain. And here again, the issue of divine perseverance is shown through uh, to be the deciding, and I believe the deciding characteristic of a true believer. Are you a Christian? You know, some people fall away. They profess Christ and they fall away. What happens? They, they're showing that they never were truly Christians. True Christians will abide. Now, I will offer this caveat here that sometimes true Christians will stumble and fall away for a time, but they will always come back. They will be brought back. But I, I tell you, traveling in evangelism, I don't know how many times I had mothers, a mother or some loved one come up to me and say, would you pray for my son or pray for my daughter? Uh, they, they were raised in the church and they fell away from God and, uh, they're, and they're just backslidden. Oh, I, you know, that grieves my heart. They're not backslidden. Backsliding, by the way, in the Old Testament is apostasy. <laughs> They're not just backslidden. They never were truly born again. And many will, will never return. Some do. And if, that, and if that's the case, then they, that shows they truly were born again. So now let's get into the metaphor itself. And, let, and before that, let me ask you a question. Are you bearing fruit for God? So the divine, here's the, the uh, vine metaphor, which stands, I think, for the kingdom of God established in the world. Jesus, and this is, I think you need to understand this. Jesus' declaration is, I am the true vine. Now that automatically tells you that there's another vine that is now false. There has to be a false vine if Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's making a comparison. So the psalmist declared, and there, here's where it gets, I think, very interesting in Psalm 80. The psalmist declared there in verse 8, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. Hosea 
then the prophet of Israel later said, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. That's Hosea chapter 10 verse 1. At least that was the intended purpose. Moses, and here's this is to, to me is a very interesting point. Moses addressed God's purpose back in Deuteronomy 32. Referenced it earlier. And in, uh, uh, let me just share here, verse 17, when the Most High gave the nations their... No, this is earlier, this is uh, 8. When the Most... 7 and 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, He divided mankind and He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But... The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them on its, on its pinions. The Lord Yahweh alone guided them. No foreign God was with them. But, and here's the, here's the problem, Moses foresees and then prophesied Israel's rebellion. After declaring the glorious thing God was going to do for them, he said, but Jeshurun grew fat. And kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. In their prosperity under God. Then they forsook God. Who made him. And scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Skipping a few verses. They stirred the Lord to jealousy with their worship. Of strange gods. And their forsaking of him, for their rock was not our rock, that is the pagan gods, and our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Isn't it interesting? This is a pride month. Their grapes are the grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is poison of, of serpents and cruel venom of asps. That's what happened. So in light of Israel's per persistent disobedience, the psalmist lamented, Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along its way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the fields feed on it. That's again from Psalm 80, verses 11 to 13. And, and again, Hosea gives us the reason for the Lord's displeasure. For immediately after, in fact, this is part of verse 1. Israel is, was a fruitful vine. But then he says, but the more his fruit increased... The more altars to Baal, see, he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars to Asherah, 
Baal's consort. Their hardest faults. Their hardest faults. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. But, and here, we need to take hope because the, back, going back to Psalm 80 again, the psalmist cries out, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and and thus for the son you have made strong for yourself. So here he's given us a hint. Yes, God's going to come back and he's going to restore it and he's going to do so through the son whom he has made strong for himself. So we have Jesus saying, I am the true vine. Yes, the Lord answered this prayer and Jesus declared, I am the true vine. Jesus would accomplish what the old vine failed to accomplish. You know, this is, this is, my, uh, this is my hope for the dark days that we're living in that God will raise up and revive His people. So the players in the metaphor are introduced in the first two verses. Jesus stated in the very first verse, very simply, I am the vine. So he is the, he's the main player. I'm the vine. I'm the one the Lord planted here. He replaces the old covenant vine, Israel. However, unlike the old covenant vine, Israel, Jesus is the core of the Christian faith, being the source of eternal life and the sustain and that which sustains the branch the father this is the second one and he is the vine dresser the greek term and this is very interesting the greek term that's used here that's translated vine dresser is the is the greek word that usually means simply farmer in fact it means a tenant farmer but the emphasis here is the fellow who is actually in the field doing the work. Uh, often in, in Jewish times, the farmer sat in his house enjoying the fruits of his... And he had tenant farmers out there actually doing the work. He owned the land, but he had tenant farmers that was act, were actually doing the work. In fact, Jesus uses an illustration like that in a parable. The tent of the tenant. The tenant farmer here is God Himself, the Father, who is doing the actual work in the field. And then we have the disciples, and by extension, all true Christian followers uh, are branches abiding in the vine. You are a branch. You're abiding in the vine if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So now the duties, we need to look at the duties of these players. And that's clearly stated. And the emphasis goes back to the father. He doesn't appeal, he's, he's, not, he's not begging and cajoling the branches. Listen guys, I know you're troubled about the, everything, but to, 
you know, you need to buck up. You need to, you do, you need to, you do, you do, you do. No, no, it's not that at all. He tells them flat out, the Father prunes the vine that it may bring forth more fruit. The branches, that is, that it bring, may bring forth more fruit. Guys, I'm not worried about you. You may be concerned about yourselves, but the Father is in charge here and He's going to prune you. And your suffering right now is part of that pruning process. Branches in me that bear no fruit, He takes away. In order that they may bear more fruit. We read that over, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, Pruned branches bear more fruit and better fruit. Pruning often, however, results in hardship to the branches. Who likes to be cut off? <laughs> but it's necessary to the sanctifying work for holiness to which they are called. And this gives us a very clear clue about what the fruit is that we are to bear. So we go to Hebrews. And Hebrews informs us there in the 12th chapter, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. That's Hebrews 12, 7, 10, and 11. That's why he prunes us. That we may be holy and bear fruit unto holiness. And he also removes the branches that bear no fruit. Now, what is, he, what is Jesus talking about there? And I, you know, I, I've read the commentators and they offer various explanations for the fruitlessness of these branches. Some suggesting that uh, branches that don't bear fruit are Christians who have lost their salvation or lazy Christians that are not living for Christ or, or a myriad of other things. And, and when I'm reading that, I said, I, I think we need to be careful here because this is a metaphor. And you don't take particulars of the metaphor beyond the basic intent of the message. So here's the here's I believe the truth of that. It's not it's not telling us that they're that it's telling us in a in a vine vineyard situation branches that don't bear fruit are, are taken away. The Father, it's not a matter of our salvation here. It's a matter of the fact that that what the vine is all about is bearing fruit. And in order to bear fruit, the, the branch remains or abides in the vine. So Jesus stresses that. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, so, can, so can, uh, you cannot bear fruit except you abide in me. Disciples are branches and have no life of their own. And thus... Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So abiding or remaining is the duty of every branch. But here again, the language has got, we must not take it beyond the simple truth that's given here. The believer is the branch. And in and as in nature, branches have no ability to act on their own. Jesus plainly shows that branches are acted on by the Father. They grow from the vine. They bear fruit because of the life derived from the vine. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There in 14.6. Jesus is not warning Christians to be careful to stay put or they will lose their salvation. No. That would contradict the sovereign nature of salvation as Jesus declared there in the 16th verse. You did not choose, choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So while there are mere professing Christians in the church, true believers live because uh, they abide in the living vine. Jesus is their life. Again, in, Paul, in, in uh, Romans 11, Paul addressed this same uh, principle, this same sovereign principle in, the, in salvation. It is the elect, the remnant chosen by grace that obtain life from the vine. But Paul uses, instead of a vine, he uses the olive tree, which is another representation of Israel. They were grafted in by the farmer, the father, among others, the believing remnant of Israel, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That's verse 17 of chapter 11. But the warning is sounded to unbelieving professors. If the branch does not bear, abide in the vine, it is thrown away and burned. It's worthless. So Jesus then assured the disciples. And here's, this is a powerful truth too. In verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And again, we need to, we, I need to give you a brief, just a brief explanation of this. We don't, we don't use this terminology so much in our culture. But for the Jews, these Jewish believers that Jesus was speaking to, they understood perfectly. Outside the temple was a laver. The priests, before they could perform their duties, had to go and ritually cleanse themselves at the laver. Indeed, this became so important to them. You know, remember the, G the Jews criticized the disciples of Jesus because they ate without washed hands. The CDC would love them because they were stressing, you got to have washed hands. <laughs> but he's not talking about just merely washing your hands for cleanliness. It was the ceremonial ritual cleansing that they went through that proved their holiness. That's the point. It became a ritual. Rituals are, are all right. I'm not, I'm not opposed to rituals, but be careful because this is what happens with, with the human race. Rituals take place of the thing that they are supposed to emphasize and illustrate. Like circumcision. 
I'm circumcised. The eighth day. Of this tribe or that tribe. You know, that was their identifying mark. But the scripture said, don't circumcise your flesh. Circumcise your heart. It's not the flesh. It's the heart. It's your real spiritual life. This, the outer ritual should reflect what is really true inside you. And notice what Jesus said. You are clean. Already you are clean. Ritually clean. Pure. Holy in the, in the sight of God. Not because of some ritual you performed. Getting baptized or going through a labor. But because of the word that I have spoken to you. The declaration of Jesus. What assurance. Not something I did. It's something he said to me. You're clean. Hallelujah. You're clean. And it repeats the assurance that he gave to them in John 13. When he's speaking to Peter. said one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Yeah, and he's using this as an illustration of our need to keep ourselves clean. But not every one of you, and that was referring to Judas. Not, he said, you're already clean. You, but you need to keep right with God. So the ceremonial cleansing then required... And the old covenant was fulfilled by the sacrifice of Jesus. So Paul assures the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians 9 and 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you. But, and I love this, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And finally, there is also a direct correlation between abiding in Christ and His words abiding in us and our praying. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into that because I'm going to save it for next week. But in verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, and this is a tremendous promise. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When these things are as they should be, then what happens? The Father is glorified because His work is successful. And the believing branches bear much fruit and, show, and, and thus prove their position in Christ. Now to summarize, three things. Jesus declares that He is the true vine. All whom the Father engrafted into the vine live by the life and are fruitful because of it, are fruitful, excuse me, in holiness. They are clean, that is judicially holy. Jesus is leaving the, leaving the disciples because He was going to the cross to pay their sin debt and because they were His. He declared to them, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. His word 
which is the truth, is God's means to declare our condition. Do you believe it? It's not what you feel. It's not what you experience. It's what He says. I don't know how many times I have struggled with my own heart. And I've come back to the fact that what He says is what I need to take. Second, the evidence that we are in the vine and it is our remaining or abiding in Him. Our faithfulness. Called faithfulness. This is the, uh, the perseverance of the saints. If you abide, that is continue or remain in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That was back in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. The fruit we bear testifies to what Paul states is the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24 It is Christ in us by His Spirit and His Word that produce this abiding. Do you believe it? And does your life show it? Then thirdly, we're not perfect because we live in a sin with a sin nature and a sin-cursed earth. But because we remain in Him, we will bear fruit unto holiness. As we are obedient, our fruitfulness increases. So Jesus talks about fruit, more fruit, verse 2, and much fruit. Fruit, verse 1, more fruit, verse 2, much fruit, verse 5. The amount of fruit we bear rests on our cooperation with the Father's pruning work which is discipline. This discipline yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in those who have been trained by it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for its truth. I pray, God, that you would uh, now bless in the remaining portion of this service that we may bring honor and glory to you. But now burn these words into our hearts that we may live for Christ and bear fruit unto holiness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.